Today on Hanging with Champions, we're hanging out with an Olympic champion who literally put summer in the 1992 Summer Olympics. An Olympic champion who has done just about everything there is. TV, movies, hosted game shows. She's run marathons, crisscrossed the globe to ensure kids of the world have the right to play, and even has been fired by the president. Today, she'll take us along for the ride. It is forever an Olympic champion. Summer Sanders joins us today. So come on, hang with us on Hanging with Champions. Welcome back to Hanging with Champions, where every week we get to hang out with Olympic stars, past, present, and future. I'm Patrick Keenis with NBC Sports, the Olympic Channel, and Westwood One. And you can hang out with us, too. You can subscribe and get notified when the next Hanging with Champions episode drops. So wherever you get your podcast, if it's Apple, Google, Pandora, iHeart, tune in, Spotify, and Stitcher, we're there. And you can also leave comments on our social channels on Instagram, Twitter, and on Facebook. So today we continue with part two of our interview with 1992 two-time Olympic gold medalist swimmer Summer Sanders. And believe it or not, the passion Summer had for swimming was equal to a childhood passion for something else. In some of the readings I've done on, on your background, I, I, I did read where you said you wanted to be on TV when you were a young <laughs> kid, really just as much as you wanted to be an Olympic athlete, which for somebody who works in TV and in broadcasting, that was really illuminating for me. And I, was, I put a huge smile on my face when I read it. Uh, why was that the case? And, and where do you remember each of those dreams, the Olympic dream and the television dream uh, starting for you? Well, I... I was a big, in, and I still am an introvert quite a bit. I mean, I'm an extrovert <laughs> when I get outside, but I need my alone time and I'll just lock myself alone and just do my own thing. I used to go to, I would go to movies by myself. I lived in New York City in Manhattan and I would go to afternoon matinees by myself. Um, so, but I, uh, in high school, my best girlfriend and I, uh, Heather McClurg, uh, we didn't have a video camera, so we just had a tape recorder, and we used to do sketches, and we would do the, we would pretend like we were doing a sitcom, and our favorite sitcom was Kate Nally, which is oh, you know, Allison cute. Smith was my first crush when I was a kid. There you go. So it's like, and it's and it's kind of crazy because it's two divorced women, right, that live together with their kids. So anyway, we would do that, and um, she would make me get up on stage and do different things. Oh God! I, and I was such an inter- I was so embarrassed, but we would go out there and we would do it. Um, so yes, I just I did always love performing, um, and I knew I wanted to be on television. Uh, so yes, I I I didn't just. And it is important for, I think, many, for the athletes to hear this, because I think people just assume, oh, well, she was probably offered a job in television right after swimming and thought, man, I'll give this a try. No, I actually knew I wanted to do it. So it was, I felt like it was such a, a, a fortunate opportunity, right, that I had a way into the next passion that I already had in my life. Um, but as you know, Patrick, you can't just like, you don't just like tiptoe into that profession and you're like, okay, this is great. I can, I can have a lifelong career in television. I auditioned for so many things. <laughs> I took so many crap jobs that I was like, I remember sitting in many of the jobs going, what am I doing? This is insane. Now but I need to hit pause it. because I, I want to hear these crap jobs and these awful auditions. What, what, what were some examples of these? 
I did one, I, one job where I was obviously the color commentary in a um, corporate sports challenge. Um, and that was really fun. The corporate sports challenge part of it, but doing the color commentary on a relay of adults with balloons between their legs. And then they had to like pass the balloon off. And my, my play-by-play person, when he wanted me to talk, would hit me. He would smack me. And that's when I knew it was okay for me to speak. And I remember thinking to myself, oh my God, are you kidding me right now? Um, I remember getting, like, I auditioned for my MTV job and it came down to myself and uh, Jenny McCarthy is what I was told. That's competition. And 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 this was before Singled Out, Mm -hmm. I, I believe. Anyway, so they were going two different routes because it was a sports competition show, Sandblast. They re, they were either going to go the athlete or a different route. And so, you know, I remember thinking to myself, gosh, this is an interesting position because usually I'm used to touching the wall and then I know my result. But I auditioned and I waited for months to, and it was agonizing, you know, like what? It, am I fitting the right role, whatever? Uh, so I ended up getting that. And I just remember people saying to me, your life is going to change. Everyone's going to know your name. And I just, I, I never, I, I never really bought into any of that. I was like, eh, I don't know if I really want my life to change. I don't think so. And, uh, and my life didn't change. You know, it was an awesome MTV show and it was a great experience. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I, and then obviously I wanted, I loved the NBA my whole life. I love Jordan was my life. I mean, so fortunate, right? Patrick, we're like, we were, we got to watch the Jordan era. It was beautiful. You and were his teammate work. in 1992, the dream team. And I, 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 again, as I mentioned earlier, if you haven't checked out summer on Instagram, I think, I think you're the happiest person on Instagram based on all of the photos that I was scrolling through recently. And one of them was an old photo of you in your dorm room at Stanford. And I couldn't help but notice not just you kind of in your room, but plastered on the wall were Jordan poster, Jordan poster, Space Jam poster, Jordan poster. It almost was an obsession with a healthy obsession with Michael Jordan, who wound up being your teammate on Team USA 1992, the dream team years. Uh, I think, Patrick, many people would say unhealthy obsession. <laughs> oh, I you mean, would I say traveled. unhealthy. <laughs> I, no, 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 no. I was obsessed with Jordan. And then, I mean, I had my Air Jordans. I wore my Air Jordans to high school graduation. Uh, my mom was <laughs> like shaking her head. I can't believe this. I don't have them anymore. They actually burned down when my dad's house burned yeah. down, which is one of the many things that I'm sad about. But I think about those Jordans often. Um, I would travel to swim meets with my Jordan posters. I'd put them up in my hotel rooms with toothpaste because that does not affect the wallpaper or um, the paint. I So yeah, when how, I- How do you know this? Was that, was that a uh, guess and check? Were there some, some problems think, on previous hotel rooms where you didn't realize uh, toothpaste was the, was the way to go? Um, I think it was like passed down knowledge. I don't know. Okay. Awesome, awesome swimmer knowledge that we have. I'll file that away. Chlorinated knowledge. Um, <laughs> yes. And then uh, Sacramento Kings moved from Kansas City to Sacramento. I think it was like 85, 86 season. My dad was lucky enough. My dad uh, went in with a couple guys and got some season tickets. So when I would come back from college, I would always go to Kings games. 
And uh, that, uh, that sophomore year uh, at Stanford, I came back for Thanksgiving and it just so happened that it was King's Bulls. And the Kings got wind of the fact that Summer Sanders, Sanders was coming back into town. She's a huge Jordan fan. So they brought me down and I got to meet Jordan. And I shook his, it, it was literally like my dirty dancing moment of I carried a watermelon. I couldn't think of anything. I mean, I shook his hand. I said, hello. I thought to myself, oh my God. Like I did remember, I did remember thinking because he was stretching, and and so like one leg in front of the other, kind of stretching against the wall. And I remember thinking, mm -hmm. oh, he's not that tall, um, <laughs> which is like so classic that we. I mean, I always get like, oh, you're much shorter on camera than you are in person, or you're so much taller on camera. I get every single thing, so I, I kept thinking, oh, what an idiot thing to think, but. Um, <laughs> So I got to meet him then, and I would be lying if I didn't say, uh, if, I would be lying if I said that that didn't affect me in wanting to make the Olympic mm -hmm. team. Mm -hmm. I absolutely was motivated by the fact that I would be a teammate of Michael Jordan and Clyde Drexler and mm -hmm. Charles Barkley. I mean, what an, and, and when, I, when, I, when NBC came up to me uh, before, it was before my 200 butterfly and said, Hey, we'd love to get an interview with you at the end of this competition. I said, and my 19 year old self said, yeah, no problem. Can I get four tickets to the final of the dream team? And I, uh, <laughs> they gave me four tickets and I took three of my girlfriends. And, um, and the funny thing is the funny story is we were late to that game and we were taking public transportation and we pins, you know, little stick pins, you know how important those are at Olympic Games. So we said to the bus driver, basically muy rápido, um, mm -hmm. and we gave him four Olympic pins. And he went so fast and did not stop at a single stop. We thought he was going to break at the bus. And anyway, we made it there in time. And this is a long story. I'm so sorry for a podcast. But basically, we were in the stands and I said to my teammates, oh, my God, that's Ahmad Rashad. And they all looked at me and said, who? And I'm like, that is a Rashad. He hosts inside stuff. And so I went up to him. I, and I never do this. As I said, I was such a shy kid. I went up to him and put my hand out. And I said, Rashad, I am Summer Sanders. I am a huge fan. I just wanted to say hi. And he said hi. And that was the beginning of us knowing each other. Yeah. And then, you know, whatever, five years later, I started doing features um, on inside stuff. And a year after that, I was hosting. So funny how that works out. What an incredible story. I, I, I commend your boldness and coming out of your <laughs> shell uh, because right. that's, how, that's, how, that's how the world works. That's how things are, are, are made and created and done. So yeah. good, good on you, Summer Sanders. That's terrific. Thank you. Thanks. Have you had any, any uh, interactions with Michael Jordan since that, since that handshake? Um, did, did you have a chance to come across him, uh, intersect with him in Barcelona or after Barcelona? I'm assuming you have many opportunities with Inside Stuff and others. Yeah, many opportunities at Inside Stuff. I mean, he and, and Ahmad were best friends, so mm -hmm. he would come into the studio. I, would, I remember many times I'm just sitting there on my computer in my dressing room, and I would, he would just, I knew there was somebody at the door, and half the time I was pissed off at my computer because I have like... <laughs> I don't know what I do to technology, but I break it just in my presence. 
So I was, I remember I was cussing at my computer and I hear the snickering at the door and I turn and there's Jordan standing there, you know, laughing at me. Um, and then, you know, we all grow up, right? And uh, I live in Park City, Utah, and I belong mm-hmm. to a, a golf course here, and he also belongs to the same golf course. So uh, yeah, I went up to him and said hi uh, a few summers ago. Yeah. Um, but no, I don't, I don't see him that often. But when I do, I certainly still have, I certainly still have this, um, this feeling, and this is kind of what I've carried through life and in interviewing anybody that I've interviewed. Um, the accomplishment that I had in 92 just sort of put me in a, in a spot where I do feel a connection to any great athlete. You know, I, I've stood on the blocks with everything in my mind at that time on the line to decide if I wanted to be the greatest, the greatest in the world. And, and I stepped up to it. So I can step up to saying hi to all these people who, uh, you know, were the greatest in the world. Um, and I'm fine with it. So I, yeah, I walk up and say hi to anybody who I have, I have interviewed and who I've known uh, in any aspect of my life, whether it was my Nickelodeon job, which it seems so <laughs> any, any producer that was on my Nickelodeon show anywhere through Nickelodeon is now running some network at Viacom. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's awesome and amazing. So yeah, the journey that I've had through my career in television has been quite extraordinary. And, and full disclosure, now that you and Michael are, are, are friends of, of many years, do you still have some butterflies or are the, are the handshakes and greetings still a little awkward and clumsy? No, I've gotten much better at it. Much, Congratulations. Much Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Well, I'm glad you brought back up the, the 92 race because I wanted to get into this a little bit before we run out of time here because you, you, were, you had such a busy schedule over those uh, eight days of swimming. Uh, six different events. Uh, you were. I, I'm. It sounds like you were favored in in one, if not two. But the 200 butterfly was clearly the event that if Summer Sanders was likely to win an individual Olympic gold, it was likely to be that race. I watched it a few days ago, and it was unlike a lot of Summer Sanders 200 fly events that I had seen previously in terms of how that race started how fast that uh, Susan O'Neill took that race out. And, and in the last five to 15 meters, I was still unsure how you were going to get to the wall first with, with Wong and O'Neill uh, having the race of their lives. Yeah. I, it, it, this is what I remind people all the time, and, and we should remember it for 2020. Some of the most amazing outcomes can come from uh, imperfect moments and races. Cause that was the, the most imperfect race for me, or frankly, maybe it was the most perfect race. I have no idea. And I guess no one will ever know, but it certainly was not the way I normally, uh, strategize. So I usually take my, take it out fast, but to me, it doesn't feel fast. I just take it out very smooth and very controlled. And it's an easy kind of butterfly for me. It just so happens that my easy butterfly at that time, because of the races previous and the expectations and the the pressure, every stroke felt like it was a weight on me. And there were there were many times during that four laps of butterfly that I thought, oh my God, I'm not going to be able to finish. This is going to be so embarrassing. And there were many times during that race that I thought, oh, my parents must be so worried about me. 
in the stands. They must be so worried about what's going on. But then, but then <clears throat> during the last lap of that 200 butterfly, I thought about what we had, what literally I would think about in practice because we would practice what we think about at the end of a race so many times. So think about what I just said. My coach, Richard Quick, would often say, everyone gets tired at the end of a 200 butterfly. You want to tire the least. So remind your arms that you can get them out of the water. Remind your body that you can go back to your stroke and say that to yourself. And so that's what I said to myself for the last 25 meters. You can get your arms out of the water. Do your full stroke. Don't forget your stroke. It's not don't tighten up do your full stroke, say what you want your body to do. If you say, don't tighten up, your body's going to tighten up, do your full stroke. Your body's going to full stroke, full stroke. And so I did. And, um, Richard quick used to talk about it all the time in his speeches of watching me get my arms all the way out of the water when he knew how tired I was. And frankly, Patrick, when I touched the wall, I didn't feel like I was going to pass out. I didn't feel like I just, the weight literally of my little world, which seemed like a very big world at that moment. Now I look at the world with social media and being an Olympian and standing up there for your country is much heavier. But at that time I had, you know, the weight of the world at that time on my shoulders, it was a heavy weight. And uh, somehow I got my arms out of the water and I touched the wall and you're right. It still doesn't look like I touched the wall first but somehow I did, and I'll take it. For a 19-year-old to, just as you say, have the weight of the world on her shoulders, that's a hell of a burden for, for all of the pressure that any athlete at that stage has to experience. But for you, again, is, is what you're feeling uh, from the expectations going into Barcelona, that was, that was the race you were expected to win. How did you manage that? Because I, we well, talked talk with other athletes and, you know, Paul, Paul Wiley, I brought him up earlier. He wasn't even expected to make Team USA out of trials. He had put on his street clothes. He was leaving the locker room. A couple of other skaters had to go after him. He thought for sure he was not going to make the team. There were some falls. He made the team. He was brought back in the locker room, got back in his costume and went back on the ice. And then he has to go visit a psychologist 35 days away from the Winter Olympics to almost convince himself that he's supposed to be on this team and that he can do something great in, in Alberville, which, which, which he did. For you, though, the expectations were different. You were expected to make that team. You were expected, mm -hmm. if you did make that team, that you would be a huge favorite. And now in your last individual race, this is the last opportunity you have because you weren't planning on being in two, three, four, five Olympic games in your career. This was it. Yeah. Well, it was different times back then. I mean, there were many people who went to multiple Olympics, but <clears throat> I certainly, I knew I missed that. I, I missed the Olympic games by 27, 188. So I knew 1992 was my games and I wanted to make the most of that time there. Um, and yes, you're right. I wasn't expected to win every race that I swam, but I love our country so much that they thought, hey, if she's in it, she has a shot at it. So let's say she has a chance to win five gold medals. So that's, that's the way it was projected to, my, to the world. Um, and I really, I kind of bought into it for a second. Maybe I can. 
maybe I can win five gold medals. So my first race, I win a bronze, which was exactly the way I placed at world championships in the 400 IM. And the first question out of the mouth of the reporter was, bronze medal, you must be so disappointed. No, I'm not. Next race, 200 or my 100 butterfly, which I wasn't even expected to medal. I, I got sixth must be so disappointed. Well, I don't know if I am or not. Maybe I am a little disappointed now. 200 IM, I was like gunning for the gold. I really was. But again, I ended up second. Lin Lee broke the world record. We could talk about that in a little bit more as to what was really going on there. But let's just leave it at she won the gold. I got the silver. First question out of the mouth was, you must be so disappointed. So I say the weight of the world because I started to believe I was letting people down and maybe I was letting a few people down, but then right before my 200 fly, I had a moment with myself where I literally, I really did remind myself in the mirror, who, who do I swim for? Who am I, who am I pleasing in this moment? Who has the expectations that really matter? And the answer was one person and that was me. So the weight of the world was really the expectations I was putting on myself. And so that's what I say when I say my little world, it, and that's why I say it's so complicated for these amazing young athletes right now, because social media can be cruel. It can be beautiful and it can be amazing and it can be cruel. And if I was on social media at that time, explaining what I just went through, and if I really cared, my Libra self, who wants everyone to be happy, if I really care, that world would be so much bigger and that weight would be so much heavier. So that moment of, of in a mirror talking to myself would be so much more important. But anyway, I brought it back to its simplicity. I recommend everybody in their life right now, bring it back to the simplicity and remind yourself of what really matters and who really matters. And that's what we work for. And that's what we focus on. And that made every last stroke in my 200 butterfly a little less heavy. We brought up the 2700s back in the, uh, when, when you were 15 at the 88 Olympic trials. When we had Apollo Ono on the show a couple of weeks ago, I asked him about, you know, what, what, what motivates him to be a champion what 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 takes him to a different level in terms of his accomplishments his preparation his mental strength and 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 all that he's done for for short track speed skating and beyond now uh, i didn't i didn't need to, need to bring up whitney hedgepet's hedgepet's name to you you, you knew 2700s in the yeah. olympic trials so how how much of a motivating driving force was that granted you were 15 and maybe not with big expectations nationally to, to make the team then, but uh, how motivating was it to finish a close third, narrowly miss the team and drive you to make the 92 team? Yeah, it was perfect. It's exactly what you just said. I wasn't expected to make the team. I wasn't even really, really expected to make finals. I mean, that was kind of a shocker, certainly qualifying third for finals. You mentioned Whitney Hedgepath and then Mary Waite. And those were the two people that made the Olympic team in that race. Whitney Hedgepath was in lane eight. So for non-swimmer people, it's very similar to track and field that you're generally in the finals, always in the finals, your fastest, 
qualifiers are in the middle and then slower move out to the outer lanes. So Whitney Hedgepeth being in an outside lane was the outside sweeper, right? And um, so much so in the outside lane that my family didn't see her. So when I touched the wall, they thought I had qualified. And then they look up at the scoreboard and it's all on video oh. and you hear them go, yes! And then they look up on the scoreboard and they're like, oh God. I mean, it was like such disappointment. So yeah, I, I mean. It That's hard for me to listen to right there, by the way. Isn't that hilarious? Yeah. We, we, we have parents like that as well. Classic, <laughs> classic par parental move. Um, yeah. So I didn't, I didn't know how I was going to pull that off. And Patrick, I would have gone to Seoul, South Korea and done nothing at the Olympic games. I would have been a placeholder. I would have just been there and then checked it off as, oh, okay, summer made the 1988 games. And that is fine, but not for me. So it was, it would not have motivated me missing the Olympic team by 27 one hundredths and getting touched out at the mm -hmm. end of my race were two things that I focused on for the next four years and they fueled my fire. And I think I certainly needed that. And I used that moment of failure that many people thought it was as a catalyst. And uh, I'm forever grateful for it. One of the things that I'm struck by when, when Paul Wiley was on the show a few weeks ago, again, he had no expectations to even be anywhere near the podium, let alone win a silver medal. And there was some controversy with some of the, of the judges during the, the, the men's long program that determined the winner, some thought that Paul should have won it. But when you ask Paul, he said, I, I won the silver medal. He earned the silver. He doesn't feel like mm -hmm. the gold was maybe taken from him or judges issues or stolen from him or he wasn't robbed of a gold medal. He, and it, was, it was a phrase I'd never heard before that he is so proud that he won the silver medal. He didn't lose out on a gold. Right. Well, and I think, um, I think that's accurate, right? Um, I didn't learn about losing gold until I, I spoke to team sport people. And, and that was really eye-opening for me because I remember uh, I, I was talking to some ice hockey girls, women. I was talking to some ice hockey women after the uh, Sochi final, right? And they were pissed off. They were pissed off because they lost. And in that moment, if you are a competitive person, a competitive, like competitive enough to be an Olympian, right? And as soon as you're done with your game, you have to act like you're happy that you won the silver medal when you lost the gold. That was so eye-opening to me. And she explained it, Julie explained it to me very clearly. She said, Summer, we lost the gold. And I thought, oh my God, that's right. You, you got the silver medal, but you lost the gold. And I was very, I understood that. I was empathetic. And, uh, but I do think in our sport, we rarely look at it as we lost the gold. It's that we won the silver. And it's just different sports. So Summer, I can't thank you enough for your time. Uh, just a couple of more topics that I, mm -hmm. I, since I, since I have you here and I'm not sure when the next time that you'll pop on the show, I want to make sure that we get to even briefly. Uh, we, we talked at the open about all of the different things that you've done. And one of them is running marathons. And I'm, I'm assuming you use this as a, 
vehicle for your athleticism, a way to burn off energy, a way to clear your head and think and appreciate nature, which certainly is, is very important to you. Um, the story I wanted to bring up, and I haven't read much about you running the Boston Marathon in 2013, but this was your very first marathon. Correct me if any of these details are wrong. This was, I believe, your first full marathon that you were training for. And for those who maybe can't tar- you know, put that pin on the calendar, 2013 was the Boston Marathon where the two bombs went off at the finish line uh, right before 3 o'clock in the afternoon when thousands of runners were still on, on the course for the Boston Marathon. What do you remember about that day? Where were you on the course? How, how much of an impact has that had on your life since? It was April 15, 2013. Uh, that, that marathon was my fourth marathon. Okay. Um, I'd run to New York and then I, I ran Chicago in 2011 to qualify for Boston. Um, my mom and my two friends were in the stands, uh, cheering for me as I went through the finish line. Um, I was so incredibly emotional, uh, because it was a bucket list item, right? You, uh, for me, I was just going to run Boston once and, I did it and it was amazing. And yes, those last six miles of hills were incredibly difficult. And my legs were seizing and I did an interview right at the end. And they asked me if I, w- I wished my, my kids were there and my husband. And I said, oh, I do wish they were here. But, you know, I, I, I just want them to know that I do these things because I, I want them to feel like they can do anything they want to. They just have to work hard. And I, so my point is I remember every single moment of what happened I went into medical because my legs were seizing. I was crying with the woman who was helping me. She, was, she used to be a swimmer. Her husband was deployed and was currently either in Iraq or Afghanistan. I couldn't remember. Um, I was so grateful to them that I was hugging them and crying. And as I left, I said, thank you. And I told her I'd be praying for her husband. Little did I know that that medical tent who only had three of us in it at the time would absolutely be swamped minutes later. I called my mom and I said, hey, mom, would you come meet me outside of medical? She walked and met me and I hugged her and I cried with her. We walked into the, the uh, lobby of the hotel I was staying at, which was the Lennox, which is right there at the finish line. My friend had a Sam Adams for me and she's from Boston. And so we had our Boston moment. Other friends and family, my husband's family that lived there, we hugged. Uh, we had, took pictures. I said goodbye to them. My mom, who used to be a flight attendant, but had retired, we went up to our hotel room and uh, she never liked this hotel room that they they gave us because it was 9-11. And uh, we walked into our room number 9-11, opened the door, went in and not 15 seconds later, we heard the first bomb. And we thought it was just something like a gas explosion. Like we weren't what was that? That's so weird. And then we went to the window and we heard, felt, and saw the second explosion. And again, we just couldn't tell exactly what it was. Um, so, so we called downstairs. No one was answering. We turned the TV on. It took a while for us to realize. And then we were in lockdown. Everybody turn your cell phones off. So I, I tried to call my husband really quickly and he had no clue what was happening. I said, hey, you're going to hear about this. There have been explosions. I'm okay. And I hung up. And uh, so anyway, Summer, just go get ready. We need to catch our plane anyway. So I took a shower. We packed up. 
my family watched the television as I was in there and they kept saying, we think there might be more explosions in hotels. So turn your cell phones off, turn your cell phones off. And then not, a, not 10 minutes later, sirens in our hotel, everyone out, everyone out. So we thought, oh my God, maybe it's our hotel. So we grab our bags and we're walking down nine flights of stairs because the elevators are not working. And with every step I say, oh my God. And my mom is right behind me saying, it's not our time. Oh my God, it's not our time. So we get down to the lobby, military everywhere. And they're yelling, stay with your family, get outside, stay with your family. And then we're just in this sea of like an apocalypse almost where you have half of the people kind of know what's going on and the other half are super confused. And the other, well, then there's thirds, I guess. And the other third just finished a marathon and are kind of angry that they can't get into their hotel. So it's just this sea of confusion. And I'll never forget it. I know it's a very long explanation. I remember, my point is, I remember more of what happened from the finish line to me getting home than I do of any of what happened during that marathon. So um, it was very emotional and I, I am tied to Boston in a very strong way and I am tied to my running community. I say that running is my heart, swimming is my soul. Um, and so from that moment I got home and I hugged my family and I felt very grateful and then I just decided to sign up for every race I could, uh, two of them being New York 2013 and Boston 2014. And uh, so, yes, there's my story of 2013. Incredible story. And, and uh, the, the, what, what, time, what time did you finish the race? Because the bombs went off at 2.49 Eastern. Was it a matter of 10, 15, 30 minutes after you crossed the line that the bombs went off? I don't know the timeline of it. I just, I, I, I ran a three, maybe like 331 or 329. I can't remember mm -hmm. what, what time I ran three hours and something, 20 something or 30 something minutes. Um, so I don't know the timeline because I did the interview. So I was at the finish line for okay. a while and then I went to medical for a while and I wasn't moving fast at all right. after that, you know? Um, but fair to say it was within a fairly narrow range. Yeah, of time. it was a narrow window. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a narrow window. Do you do it, you allow yourself summer to to? Uh, this is a is a really hard question to ask. Do you do you allow yourself to think about what would have happened if if your start time had been pushed back x number of minutes? I mean, I'm, I'm assuming that some of the people that you ran by or ran uh, ran, ran by you ran by during the race might have been some of the you know hundreds of people who were who were injured in this uh, awful awful terrorist attack i the first there are many things I think of um, the first being I remember sitting on when we made it to the airplane because we flew out mm -hmm. that day, and my husband kept calling me once he realized what was going on and he 's like I've talked to everyone summer. We don't think you should go to any of the, we don't think you should go to Logan. You need to go to like West Hartford or you know, some other outlying area and hop on a plane. And I said, this plane just came in and it is taken off right away. Like, and I'm going to be on it. And when I sat on the plane, that's when I realized summer, you haven't had anything to drink. I was so dehydrated. I hadn't even bothered. I just ran a marathon. I hadn't even gotten any water or any like 
replenished my body with anything. And so I sat on the plane and the first thing I thought of was I looked at my mom and I thought, it can't be any of those kids. I, there were so many kids that were handing out candy to us along the route because if you've never heard of the Boston Marathon and the route, you're in neighborhoods, you're outside of people's homes. I'm always amazed. I'm like, if you live on the route, you don't leave for the entire day. So these kids were handing us gummy bears and gummy worms and it was so personal. And I just thought it couldn't have been any of those kids that were helping us. And then of course you get, you get very personal with it and you think, thank goodness my kids didn't come and my husband didn't come. Um, and then my friend lives outside of Boston that met us. I know her because her son loved me from my, my Nickelodeon show, Figure It Out. And um, he, he had such severe cancer that they contacted me and said, hey, Summer, would you call this little boy um, because he's terminal and, I, and he really loves your Nickelodeon show. And so I, I built this relationship with his name was Mikey Riley. He was five when he passed away and his mom, Chris Riley. And um, Chris and I have been friends for over 30 years now, right? So I, I come into Boston and she says, well, let me come meet you. And I said, great, awesome. So she comes in two days before the marathon and she says on her way in, Mikey, she looks up to the heavens, Mikey, hook me up and get me a parking spot you know, in a good Boston, you know, New England accent or whatever. And so I, uh, she, we finally, it, she, it takes her a while to get to us and we're walking on the street and, and we're like, Chris, what happened? She goes like, I asked Mikey to hook me up for a parking spot. And he, and he, and he didn't, he, but she goes, you're never going to believe it. I'm walking along and I see this friend I haven't seen in years. And it just so happens that he works for John Hancock and he handed me three VIP passes you know where those VIP passes were? They were on the good side of the street. They were on in the stands. So they, they weren't on the other side where the first bomb went off. And uh, anyway, Mikey hooked him up. So I, I think about a lot of things. I haven't ever thought about like, what if I was in that section of the explosion? I've only just thought about, you know, that my family was all quite safe and and that was really lucky turned out that was the perfect parking spot wasn't it yeah right yeah we, we've uh, thought about that often how yeah about, how about, what what was it like the next year 2014 when you returned to boston then boston 2014 was amazing uh i show up in boston and it was a big deal for me to be there it was april 21st 2014 and my daughter's birthday is april 21st so I asked her permission. I was like, Sky, I really feel like I need to go back and run this race. Do you like, are you going to be okay? I'll take that same flight home and we will have cake together. You know, like we will eat your birthday cake and we'll go do something fun. And she was eight at the time and she seemed to get it. She seemed to understand, but I, I walked onto the course and I stood at that finish line and I just started bawling. So you don't realize how a moment affects you until, I don't know, I, I went back there and I just realized I needed to be there. I thought, oh my God, I like, it, I, 
tears just shot out of my face. And I, I just knew this race is so much more than what this race is. This is a healing moment for me and uh, it's closure a bit for me. So it was magical on every level. And personally, I was in such incredible running shape that I felt so good. <clears throat> personally, I was in such good running shape that I, I felt so good at the end of that marathon that it made the experience even that much better. I negative split that marathon and and that's really hard to do in boston because your last six miles are these rolling hills that just crush your legs but i knew how to train for it this time so my journey down boylston was i was just crying the whole time so grateful to everybody in boston and all of these runners that showed up on purpose and uh yeah, it was a magical experience. What a, I mean, what, what a, th- thanks for opening up your heart. That was an incredible uh, story about your, your two marathons in Boston and clearly still emotional. And I'm, I'm assuming you don't think a lot about it now. And you can just see how personal this is, um, what, seven years, six, seven years later now for you. Um, you know, Kara yeah. Goucher just asked me about it the other day and I started crying then too. I don't talk about it that often and uh but when I do and I feel like and I feel like through this and extending through people's you know headphones and earbuds and all that that um they're listening to it on purpose and they're they're hearing it and I and I, it's important for me that they feel that they feel it and so yeah. it does make me emotional when I feel like people are feeling it yeah, it's, it's just so appreciate your your honesty and your your candor and 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 the, just the raw personal emotion. That's that's what makes us all. Um, and your delivery of the story is fantastic. I would like to have you talk to the young students, the young student athletes, just the young people out there on the importance to to finish a college education. Oh my goodness! Um, yes. I, I I did not realize until very recently that. I assume you had your degree conferred from Stanford uh, back in the early to mid nineties. Um, didn't know that wasn't the case. Didn't know that your diploma was basically empty and you had to immediately see the registrar when you walked across the stage. But a couple of decades later, a couple of credits or units short of a degree from Stanford, you finally, you finally did it. And to me, that's, that's as huge of a personal accomplishment as winning an Olympic gold medal to me. But what, yeah. Can you fill in the cracks and, and give us more of the tapestry of that story? I'm gonna fill in the cracks and then I'm gonna go back to what you originally asked, which was talking to kids about the importance of an sure. education, especially the student athletes right now that might get, that might get blurred a bit. Um, it was always incredibly important to me. It was always embarrassing and shameful to me, quite frankly, that I didn't have that diploma in my cute little Stanford diploma case. I was seven units shy and I was a communication major. And when I got done with, I I had taken a quarter off uh, after my Olympic year and I had done an extra quarter at the end when everybody else left. And so that summer, and it wasn't enough. 
And so I thought to myself, all right, well, I've, I'm already doing my, I'm working, right? I have my MTV show and I'm doing what I want to do. I'll go back and finish up. But I didn't really comprehend what that meant. I'd already been paying for two years of Stanford education myself because I gave it my eligibility after my sophomore year. So I knew the price tag. So I go to LA and I'm shooting my MTV show or you know, working, my MTV show was in Florida, but I'm go to LA and I'm working and I walk into UCLA that next fall to try to take a class. And as soon as that professor learns, I'm trying to graduate from Stanford, he says, we don't have room for you. And I thought, oh, okay. I'm also learning that UC schools are full, right? Like they don't have room for somebody who's not trying to get a UCLA, you know, diploma. Okay, so that, that avenue is shut down. And you have to remember, this is 1994. The internet is not established enough to have online courses. So now I'm waiting and waiting and waiting for that time when I have three months to go back and, and get these last seven units. So I literally, I waited, I, I tried maybe 10 years later. Uh, I think University of Washington had some online courses. I tried to see if those would work. The, the syllabus did not fit Stanford curriculum. So that did not work. So finally, the internet sort of caught up. And I also had my dad not asking me when I was going to graduate, but I knew it was extremely important to him. And I thought, I can't live with myself if anything happened to my dad. And I didn't have my degree. So I, I researched University of Utah. They have amazing online courses. Uh, I it was not easy. There were many roadblocks. I, I got my classes. It was super fun, really stressful. I got to learn about online Canvas, which is what my kids use for all their schooling right now, which was amazing to learn how it works. Uh, and I muscled through and I finished my seven units. I think I even had extra units because University of Utah is semester and Stanford is quarter. Um, and, and yeah, I it was so emotional when I got that diploma. So going back to your original question, to remind the student athlete how important getting that diploma is. Yes, Patrick, it's about getting that diploma, but it's also thinking outside of the box and understanding I can be an amazing athlete. And I also can think about my next career at the same time being prepared for what's going to come after your sport is over is so vital and it's not vital as much monetarily as it is emotionally and mentally so take advantage of the classes that you have be present in your uh intellectual and in, in, intellectual aspect of your life this is an incredible moment to be at school this is an incredible opportunity to have your school paid for more than like what 90 percent of the student body is paying a ridiculous sum of money to get an education you are getting it for free essentially i know you're working for it but take advantage of this opportunity i think it's very important think about the classes you want to take be present in shaping your your future it is essential to the journey of your life you might not think it right now but it is yeah. And working in pro baseball, I see this all the time with the high school players who are drafted and brought into professional organizations, junior college players who 
you know, might go to college for a year or two and then not complete their degree or college juniors uh, see it all the time. And when, it, when their career is done, the, the next question is, well, what do I do now? What's next? And you don't have the degree and they really haven't thought much about their future after that. Summer Sanders, can't thank you enough for your time. I, I'd be remiss if I didn't bring up one last, uh, I guess, question for you, experience for you. Back in 2010, you were a member of uh, Celebrity Apprentice with uh, Donald Trump, Brett Michaels from Poison Wanted. There are huge stars on there with you. Sinbad, Daryl Strawberry, Michael Johnson, Cindy Lauper was on there as well, uh, Holly Robinson, and, and many others. You lasted, I think, seven weeks before you got fired. And the, the judges panel at the end of each show, correct me if I'm wrong, changed every week. But the judges I saw listed for the week that you were fired were Ivanka Trump, Eric Trump, and President Donald J. Trump. Is this true? What was the experience like? And how could you get fired, Summer? What happened? I know. Well, here's the deal. Okay, a couple of things. <laughs> I look back on that, and then now, in the current state that I'm in right now, and I can't believe uh, that I was fired by the president. But <laughs> uh, the show, the, the show was actually really awesome to be a part of. Um, it was crazy and chaotic and emotional and all of that. But at the time in my life, I had a baby and a toddler. And so I was so challenged in every way. And I was playing for my charity, which you had mentioned at the top of the show is very important to me. It's called right to play. So the fact that I got to say, and I was, I was crying when I actually won my first challenge or my, you know, whatever they were called, I forget um, my task. And I got to say, right to play on national television. I made sure to compose myself so that it wasn't muffled. And when I said those words, the country heard. Um, so that's why I went on the show. Uh, but yeah, crazy and awesome and, uh, and wild now when I look back on it. But a, I do have to say, he's a brilliant reality show host. Mm. Brilliant. Yeah. And for all the politicians and generals and everybody else that he's fired over these last three and a half years, you're in really good company, Summer. I'm just going to say you. that. <laughs> thank you very much. Thank you. Thank well, you. Summer, I, I can't thank you enough for spending so much time and, and giving us just such great memories and stories of not only your swimming career, but it's the impact that you're having on so many people's lives. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time. I could not, could not be more grateful. Thanks, Patrick. I appreciate yeah. it. So my best to Eric and to Sky and Spider and, uh, <laughs> and, and, and everybody associated with you. And, and thanks to Mikey for getting away, uh, everybody a very good parking spot. In oh, yes. So. I'll, tell, I'll tell Chris. <laughs> That'll make her very happy. Well, great thanks to 1992 Olympic champion Summer Sanders for hanging out with us today. And just a reminder, you can hang out with us too. Subscribe and you get notified when the next Hang With Champions episode drops. So wherever you get your podcast, Apple, Google, Pandora, iHeart, TuneIn, Spotify, Stitcher, we're everywhere. And also on our social channels, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. So thanks to all of you for hanging with us. I'm Patrick Kinas for Summer Sanders and our entire crew. Thanks for hanging out with us on Hang With Champions.